0: Hello, Coconuts! Welcome to another episode of TFC Stock Geek Out. So in today's episode, we thought it might be interesting to dive deeper into the US-China relationship and how this could affect our investments in both the US and China markets. Joining me today is Tim from Prosperous again and Samuel from CIMB Securities. Tim is the Head of Content and Investment Lead for Prosperous and somewhat a regular on our show and Samuel is a Market Specialist at CIMB Securities focusing on China and Hong Kong. For reference, this episode is for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not serve as any form of financial advice or recommendations. Thank you for loving what we do and empowering us financially to do more for you. Let's Geek Out! Hi Coconuts, welcome back to another episode of Stock Geek Out! Today, so today we wanted to really dive deeper into macro, but not just the U.S. Fed, but also you know, geopolitics and the U.S.-China relationship. And and to help walk us through that a bit, we have Tim Phillips again from Phosphorus. Welcome back, Tim. And Hi. we have Sam, uh, Sam from B Securities. So, you know, he's a China specialist, China-Hong Kong specialist, and he's going to, well, I guess push the envelope for us a bit in terms of how we perceive you know, Hong Kong and China. So w- welcome to the show, guys. Can you tell us a bit more about yourself?
1: So my role really is to be creating a long-term focused investment content, educational content, outreach for um, you know, younger investors, you know, at least a five-year horizon, if not longer, five, 10, 15, 20 years, uh, finding great companies, thinking about how to allocate assets. So Um, Me and my team put out a lot of our content on Prosperous.Asia, which you can uh, go visit Mm -hmm. and check out. Uh, And while you're there, maybe sign up for an account as well. And you can uh, invest globally across many (laughs) many different
2: exchanges with us. I'm a market specialist of the China Solutions team in CGSEI and B-Securities. So on a day-to-day, actually, I do talk about the Chinese markets to various media, as Mm -hmm. well as share my viewpoints across. So I mainly specialize in that across an array of I specialise in the Hong Kong and China markets across a array of products, such as
0: stocks. Today, we are just going to talk a bit more about US-China. You know that that increasing what great powers competition in a sense, and the, the and how you know that could impact on investing. Um, I I don't think that I don't think actually within the three of us, um, you know we we actually agree on the impact. But of of course, I'm I'm the least important one here. So so I'll just leave it to you guys. But why don't we start from the very big picture, right? You know that I mean, I, reading the news, there just seems to be this trend of increasing U.S.-China competition, right? There, There's you know, all the U.S. bans on Huawei, there's increasing rhetoric on the Uyghur situation, you know, China's, I mean, even in, in Trump, there was a trade war and that just never ended. You no, know, Is that right? I think
1: if we rewind the tape a little bit just to understand the uh, context of competition between the U.S. and China, I mean, going back to 2000, you know, the 90s, uh, when China was opening up, it was still, you know, a a really tiny emerging economy, but with a bit over a billion people. So the market opportunity was huge. And then 2000 came and they joined the WTO, right, or or, or 2001 World Trade Organization. And that really opened up Chinese markets for basically uh, everybody, right? But China became the manufacturing hub of the world. And then during the 2000s, that decade was just was crazy, it was driven by commodities uh, you know the, the voracious appetite that China had for commodities building just insane amounts um, you know of construction as well in china and so yep. that really saw growth hit you know 13 percent for a sustained period of time and obviously that came to um, more of an end at the end of the financial crisis um, mm-hmm. and that was powered a bit more by stimulus by the chinese economy Chinese government but then what happened there is that and the chinese government then started thinking a bit more strategically and then their their tech giants started to come into their own right and so i think yep. over the past decade at least since 2010 to to the present we've had a bit more of a strategic competition from you know higher level uh, tech whether that's ai mm-hmm. uh things that are changing like cloud computing things that are going to really drive i guess the world for this decade and and they become a lot more confident right the chinese economy the chinese government yep. is a lot more confident And so I think that's just clashing against this idea that the U.S. is the hegemonic power of the globe, right? And I think the Chinese government doesn't feel it has to be that way. So I think you're seeing that uh, play out in in politics as well as
2: in uh, markets.
0: Cool. Sam, anything to add to that?
2: And as China continues to expand its footprints, uh, because of the difference in ideology between the two various governments, and I think that uh, U.S. is... Becomes more fearful of what will happen if a Chinese economy actually overtakes the US. And that was what mm-hmm. Trump was very fearful during his uh, time as president. And he did highlight that it a few times. And I think that uh competition uh due to that uh became more intense. And we can see a lot of uh detrimental effects uh when Trump was in pres- uh when Trump was the US president, whereby he ignited he ignited a lot of like tariffs against China, and you can see yeah. that. He put China's, uh, some of the semiconductors as well as uh, telephone brands onto the watch list, etc. And right now, uh, in the Biden administration, we can see that uh, things did not take a step back. But uh, we can see it's just remaining tense because uh, Biden, uh, US President Biden may not also want to actually lift up all of, uh, President Trump's measures from there. So we can see that there's still a little bit of uh, tensions here and there and things will okay. still get more intense especially with the difference in viewpoints in one way or another.
0: This seems to be very US-centric in a sense, right? Uh, because it's, it's US being fearful, it's US trying to defend its position and, and all that. Do you think that China is, is being in a sense antagonistic and, and trying to you know, push this conflict a bit
1: further? I think China, what China, the Chinese government wants is for the world not to be led by the US world order, right? Because I think it's being proved, I guess, over the past decade that there are many countries that don't need democracy to thrive economically, to do well. You know, other (laughs) autocracies doing really well as an economy and growing. So I think their their impression that, um, you know, they need democracy or they need free markets and and the U.S. system in order to thrive and to be powerful is completely being dispelled now in their eyes. Mm And obviously, I think the U.S. has become disillusioned with thinking, oh, we're going to introduce free market economics and capitalism into China. And that will get them to change, you know, their way of thinking and their way of government. Right. And clearly, time and again, that's that's not really been the case from the Chinese perspective. You know, I think it would be ideal for them, the government, if there was the U.S. going back, retreating back into their own U.S., you know, North America. Russia kind of dealing with Europe, and then China having Asia, right? China, you know, the Pacific. And obviously there have been some, I think, antagonistic um, moves. You know, there's obviously a lot of the maritime islands that are being built out, Mm -hmm. and there are Southeast Asian nations who have issues with that and are raised. But obviously China, because it's so big, um, you know, I think it's been more aggressive and belligerent in the past maybe five, six years than it would have been previously because it's much more confident in its stature now in the world and, and its mm. power. Um, so I think that's something that has, that has changed. So I think, you know, both sides obviously antagonize each other in certain ways. Um, and I don't think that's going to change in the near future, unfortunately.
0: <laughs> yeah, that doesn't seem like it.
2: Yeah. 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 How uh, yeah.
0: about you, Sam? Anything
2: to, to add to that? We can see that even from a, a, a perspective is that the measures put on the recent trade war a few years back was actually imposed by the U.S. first because the U.S. wanted China to buy more U.S. products and not that uh, China wanted to penalise U.S. in one way or another. So it started with uh, the U.S. actually implementing tariffs on China and China Mm -hmm. uh, doing sort of like a tit-for-tat movement. And if you look at it, if we look at China's five-year plan, it's actually also looking at internal internationalization, is looking at making itself a more global focus, as well as growing its economy in terms of the green space, etc. So if you look at where China is coming from, it's always more individualistic, that it wants to grow its economy and it wants to uh, grow at its own pace, and hopefully uh, eventually reach uh, more economic freedom, etc., as well as expand at a greater pace. And I think that if we look at from it, as an aspect, I don't think you can say it's very antagonistic in one way or another, but more of like it wanting to do it things its own way and not being sort of like forced by others to say that, no, your way is wrong and my way is correct, and eventually give in to other people.
0: Whether yeah. it's deliberate or whether they are trying to you know, push each other over each day, they are in competition. I, I know, mm. and, and I think we, we, both, we all agree on that. No, but I just want to... Dive a bit deeper, and you know, just just to look at that competition, right? Because yeah. I mean, you know, Ray Ray Dalio has been going out, saying oh, you know, it's a changing world order. You know, China's well, the the next power, right? Um, yeah. they, they will overtake the US. You know, sometime within our yeah. lifetimes. You know, well, what's your take on that?
1: Yeah. I think like I think economically and and the size of the economy it's we're all in agreement I think everybody in terms of the Chinese economy will overtake the US uh some point in the decade or maybe early 2030s right so, so I think the size of the economy and the economic might of China is undeniable uh, whether that leads to this changing world order that Ray Dalio talks about I'm not entirely convinced that that's going to be the case I mean if you look at the US dollar and its dominance in global trade or in you know in terms of the swift payments you know the the um the messaging uh, interbank transfers i mean it dominates i think it's 40% and then euros are on around 35% so euros so this is the western world order of the euro and the us dollar and then china comes in at 3.2% right and that that i think was earlier this year and that was a record high from 2015 i think so a 6 year high so in terms of the actual scale of the chinese yuan i don't think it's Even close. So if you think about the US dollar, you can trade that freely. It's completely capital inflows, capital outflows. It's, you know, it's free. So it's not constrained, whereas the Chinese government has to control that. And so I think giving up control for the Chinese government of something so huge, I don't think that's going to be easy for them to do. And then for them to have the leverage maybe over other countries in that sense. Um, you see what the US has with the like the power that they have with the, <laughs> the power, right. So yeah, um, it's well, not well, just sanctions. It's well, also factor, yeah, right? Will this, other countries it? be willing to let the Chinese government have that leverage. Um, and then what you touched on with the with the culture and the companies and what you're seeing. You know, what what do we use? We use Zoom. We use DocuSign. We watch Netflix. Uh, we don't. Use WeChat unless you're Chinese overseas or you're in China. Even though it's the the most you know the biggest um, biggest social media operator, so all these brands. If you think about the biggest brands in the world globally, um, consumer facing brands, you know how many are Chinese, right? So that to me is something that I think the soft power is still really far behind for China. It's all catered to a Chinese audience, and it's not. Mm. Maybe it's not really being given the chance to go outside or they're no, they've, not, they've got no interest because they've got 1.4 billion people there to monetize anyway. So they, they have no interest.
2: Like, like, I, I think I would like to jump in before you say anything first. It's because uh, what's up and coming <laughs> social media platform is TikTok and TikTok is actually from China. <laughs> but I, I think that uh, that being said, actually, I, I agree towards a number of points that Tim actually mentioned. First is about the currency, because even though China is actually looking at globalizing its currency, we must bear in mind that China's currency is dimmed into onshore and offshore. And like what Tim actually rightfully mentioned, a lot of the global payment systems are actually dominated by the Western, Western side of things, whereby even if you look at the most recent uh, uh, Russia-Ukraine war, you can see that when the Western actually starts sanctioning, they actually prevent uh, money flows into Russia itself. Globally, a lot of uh, countries are actually using Western-related payment systems. Uh, hmm. That is an undeniable fact but we cannot rule, rule out the possibility that uh, China may entroach into this space sooner or later. And eventually uh, China may be up and coming in terms of the tech side of things. Because like what we <clears> can <throat> see that for years, U.S. have been dominating in the social media space. But right now, as of late, like the example I just mentioned, TikTok, uh, it has uh, been up and coming and the younger generation are embracing that culture. And right now we can see that even, even in, back in Singapore, our, uh, sort of like our fourth generation leaders are also up and coming and using TikTok. (laughs) So you can see that last time when we talked about Chinese and social media, what is your impression of it? And right now, when you can see that the younger generation just embracing a Chinese social media platform, it shows that going forth, maybe there may be more up and coming uh, innovative platforms that is from China and and could sort of like uh, just come into our daily life. So I don't think we should rule that out yet. (laughs)
0: Yeah, actually, that, that's a very good point, right? Because, you know, when, when it first, I mean, my impression of the Chinese tech ecosystem when it first started was they were all, you know, clones, right? Were, you had a, a Twitter clone, you had a, you know IRC clone like 20 years ago, yeah, t- probably 20 years ago, you know, and, and you had you know, your Facebook clone, literally called like Facebook in Chinese, right? And, and now, you know, they, they are coming up with their new kind, kind of models in a sense, which is why TikTok was seen as innovative and, and that is being exported, right? And and I guess you know, that could really be the start of a trend where you know if if Chinese if China can innovate and, and innovate in international aspects, right? So it's not just about innovating in like manufacturing capacity and, and all that. It's it's innovating in, in products that are inherently global, a bit like tech and, and social platforms. Then, then that really could be the start of how they they change it. Although I must still say that you know, I I think language is a huge barrier because you can use TikTok, but you are you are not going to, you are not really supporting the, the Chinese company in that sense or the Chinese economy in that sense. Um, you know, and and there's also like you know lots of EV manufacturers and all that bigger than Tesla I mean, hidden in China. China being able to be more competitive, right? It's no longer just being a copycat. It's coming up with with its own models, its own solutions to the problems of our time.
1: I think on the hard tech side of stuff, that to me is where they're still quite a few years behind. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, With this semiconductor glut that's happened over the past few years, you kind of realize how important semiconductors are to everything we use. So SMIC, which is the state-owned chip, sort of TSMC equivalent, is... Uh, it's quite widely acknowledged that that's at least five, six, seven years behind TSMC. Um, and then you have the ASML clones that are in China, which are probably five, six, seven years behind, right? So um, I think on that front, they are quite far behind, and that's going to be difficult to catch up in. But I think on the consumer mm-hmm. front, there's definitely a lot of innovation, but that stuff is maybe less what the government really wants to focus on. Like, they weren't that bothered about clamping down on Tencent and Alibaba because consumers, oh, whatever. Yeah. You know, okay, there's innovation in there, but consumer economy we want to move now to the industrial economy and the hardware right and focusing on the hardware which is why they've uh, invested so much into chips and then obviously green tech which they've got a definite um, advantage over the u.s and and the west so they're making headway there but i think on the technology side hard, hardware technology side i think there's still quite a few years behind and by the time they catch up they'll be on the next generation already
0: so we'll, we'll yeah. see what happens in, in five to ten years but i you know if we, in, in the immediate future, definitely not under threat. Um, it, yeah. It's probably a story that you will know, we'll, we'll play out over our lifetimes and, and hopefully doesn't lead to uh, any actual conflict, right? If, if we're just talking about chips and industrial espionage, I think we can all live with that. If they're talking about actual war, you know, there's it. no point talking about investing anymore, right? So, so uh, we, yeah. we put that you know, possibility aside. Uh,
2: since two to three years back, China actually acknowledged the fact that it's uh, lacking behind. And when US actually uh, blacklisted certain of the uh, chip imports to China, China actually mm-hmm. uh, took a hit quite badly, and because of that, it has started to place a lot of strong focus on uh, chip manufacturing and hardware development. And over the past few years, we have seen China bump in a lot, and it has actually tried to leverage on uh, different ASEAN economies like Japan to tap on its specialties to actually start to develop further in that space. So I would say that maybe right now it's still behind, but over the next two to three years, it's still very hard to say whether there will be a sudden, like, jump or leap in its uh, chip space or semiconductor space in that
0: aspect. Can you tell us a bit more, you know, given this, uh, given what we see as increasing competition, but I guess still U.S. hegemony in the next, let's say we have a five, 10 year horizon, right? Um, so mid to long term, but, you know, we, we can definitely rotate. How, how does this affect your, your view on, you know, let's start with asset allocation and, and geographic allocation? Right. Do, yeah. do, you, do you think that we, we should be starting to place a bit more focus on the Chinese markets compared to just buying S&P or just buying Nasdaq? Or, or how, how does that come in?
1: Um, okay, so I'll, I'll go first. I think for asset allocation, I think if you're an individual investor and you're thinking about buying into China, I think it's much, it makes much more sense to actually just buy, um, you know, be active, I guess, in this space. Um mm-hmm. Or if you're going to go into A shares, which is the Chinese uh, stock markets in Shanghai and Shenzhen, you can you know buy a, buy a buy shares or Vanguard, TF, whatever that they have. It's low cost. Um, that focuses a bit more on the government priorities and the hardware, you know, the hardware uh, heavy stocks. But I think from the perspective of how the Russia Ukraine war is playing out and what institutional investors and smart money investors are thinking about now is, you know, China is somewhat more of a geopolitical risk going forward with this whole conflict, and then um, how do they carve out that risk, and how do they mitigate that risk? And if you think about emerging markets, I mean, China is makes up 40 or 50% of it anyway. So if you think about Japan, Japan's always been, it's been Asia-Pacific ex-Japan. So Japan stands yep. as a market, but China's economy is way bigger than Japan. So it makes absolutely no sense, I think, from a lot of investors' perspectives now to have a sec, uh, you know, to have China as part of emerging markets when it's so huge, you should actually have a separate allocation to China. Whether if, if that is active, then find the active, um, you know, but picking stocks or if it's an ETF, just have a China ETF, don't have an emerging market ETF which has it, which inevitably will have TSMC, Alibaba, Tencent, and Samsung yeah. at the top, right? So So just have a China ETF where you've got, I don't know, Alibaba, Tencent, Meituan, you know, JD. So I think the problem is buying into a lot of these funds like Asia Pacific funds, whether they're mutual funds or buying into, uh, you know, emerging market ETFs. It's basically a China. It's proxy for China, right? I personally would cap it from an asset allocation perspective at 10% of your portfolio just because i think with the geopolitical risk you really have to be selective right Um, so i think that was the joy that we had in the past sort of five ten years holding those names like oh that's great Uh, you know alibaba tencent they're going to crush it every year they're so dominant and now that's really come to an end um and there's all this talk about oh yeah it's cheap and it's it's great they're in regulators crosshairs right they have uh they have a lot of Scrutiny on top of them, and there are fines being given out, and there's you know donations to Common Prosperity, and so you know I mean we, I I think I've mentioned it before, but if I was a, if you were an Amazon shareholder actually, and they said Amazon um, you're going to have to pay us ten billion dollars uh, for yep. Common Prosperity in the US, how would you feel about that as a shareholder, right? I mean I just think as a shareholder you'd be like okay they're using the cash on the balance sheet to make obviously a good a social policy that they want made. But that is also violating your shareholder rights. Your eyes have to be open to that risk.
2: What I think that is interesting about China is that China has many thematic ETFs that is not available globally. Meaning to say mm-hmm. in China itself, even listed on the Hong Kong, there are many like uh sort of like a uh, low carbon ETFs, or even if you look at uh green uh photovoltaic ETFs, etc. So uh biopharmaceutical ETFs. So all of this uh paint a more unique picture about the Chinese growth story, whereby China is trying to target different se- different sectors that it wants to grow in. So like we can see that one of its uh, five-year plan focus will be on the green environment. And I think that recently we see a lot of policies into low-carbon initiatives, as well as mm-hmm. it funding a lot of uh, infrastructure which is targeted at uh, the environment. And with that in mind, if we want to capitalize on this growth story, instead of just Saying that, oh, I just want into China. How about you look at the various uh, different sectors that you feel have more growth story on? And I think that that can be used as a way uh, to actually diversify your portfolio in one way or another. Tim mm-hmm. rightfully points out, if you buy into emerging market ETFs, you will see Alibaba, Tencent, etc. And that is also in most like technology ETFs uh, listed in <laughs> Uh, China or Hong Kong and so if you are going to put so many so so many of these different ETFs that is highly saturated on your Chinese tech names eventually you are just going to saturate your own portfolio but if you are looking at the mm. less sort of like the less well-known ETFs or those that are focused on a particular sector that is not already in the main basket that uh, consists of a lot of the same names I think that that can be used as a way to diversify and uh, China brings a lot about debt opportunities in that aspect. Mm.
0: I think it's really a matter of style and, you know, what of preference and, and, you know, it's actually place, placing bets on your views, right? I think this will grow, therefore I buy that essentially. But, you know, and I think a, a bigger picture or a bigger broader point that you guys have been talking about is, you know, instead of buying, let's say, VWRA, right, which is the Vanguard or World ETF with 10% emerging market allocation and God knows how much of that is China or, or you know, buying different types of ETFs. But I, you know, I in would terms say, of let's not
2: discount the Chinese economy uh, potential growth mm. in the long run. But uh, then again, it depends on each each of us uh, individual yeah, I agree <laughs> with
0: you about economic growth, but, you know, we, there, there is still some sort of um, bifurcation between, you know, yeah. economic growth results and, unfortunately, you know, Chinese Capital Markets Index results, um, probably because of lack of development and all that.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons also why ETFs focused on Asia haven't taken off as much, um, you know, with retail investors here, because S&P, there's all these managers underperforming the S&P 500 ETF. so... Mm-hmm. It's quite well known. Oh, just stick in ETF, and that's the common that's the common knowledge of doing things in in the US and Europe. But actually, in Asia, all the indices are full of these rubbish state-owned companies, and so being active actually makes total sense if you're thinking about outperforming like the MSCI China or the you know or the Hang Seng Index, which is starting to change. But before the Hang Seng Index was full of you know banks like HSBC, and they had massive yeah. things, and and they. They were terrible performers over the past 15 years, right? So you just have to, you know, you just have to pick. And now with China, I think having just a China tech fund is just way too big. It was just way too much risk to me. I think you need to be more specific, as Samuel said. You know, you have to think about thematics. Um, otherwise, you're going to end up with Tencent, Baba, Mequan as your top three in a China tech fund. Okay, sounds good.
0: So I think that's ca- kind of it for you know, asset allocation. You we know, all want... Specific Chinese allocation, we want to be able to pick and choose because we, we tend to want to be active, right? Um, whether it's sector specific or, or company specific, I think we we each have our beliefs and we'll act on them and invest accordingly. The last fifteen minutes have been about rise of China. What about the U.S. Right? You know, with the increasing competition, is there a chance of well, not the fall of U.S. But you know, do. They, what, S&P has been five, 10% average returns every year.
1: So in China, that's one thing. At the moment, inflation isn't as high as the US. And monetary policy in China is, um, you know, there's a lot more room for them to maneuver the PBOC versus the Fed, which is starting to tighten very, very quickly, right? And so they're quite behind the curve, the Fed. I think that's acknowledged, widely acknowledged, that they were late raising rates. And now they're doing, having I mean, it fast. Um, in terms of the returns or the, you know the fall of the US, I don't know if there's that um, I, don't, I don't think there's that feeling or well, for me at least as an investor, I'm not so sure there's that feeling that there's uh, you know, that, that the US is completely in terminal decline. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've seen, I think there was a lot made about the initial reactions to the whole COVID thing and then obviously I think that's driven China's management of COVID and you know, sticking to zero COVID. So there, there are narratives on both sides that, have, that they have to stick to. Um, But the U.S. If you look at the history, for me, it's just consistent from the 1920s. Right, we've got nearly Mm. a century of data where annualized returns are like nine to ten percent, no matter what. So I think this decade is might be different. I mean, you looked at 2000 to 2009, basically flat, right, over the whole decade. Yeah. Yeah, That was bookmarked by the uh, the Nasdaq dot com crash and then the financial crisis. So. If you didn't invest in dividends, stocks, you would have earned a negative return annualized uh, over that decade. So are we heading into that decade now? I don't know. But if you're thinking about investing over sort of 20, 30 years, then I think it's something to... Um, I don't think it's something that's going to change because it's so established. The financial markets there are so established. If you think about what we buy and what we invest in, I mean, China is a, is a nice-to-have allocation, or you should have some exposure to it. but would you have 90% or 80, you know, 95% of your portfolio in China? Probably not. And people I know who are from outside the U.S. or China, if they buy, um, you know, they buy their home market. So people I know in the U.K. buy U.K. stocks, and then they buy U.S. stocks, right? They don't tend to buy China stocks. So I think with the rise of online investing and with the ease of of buying and trading, maybe, there just seems, and the capital market size in the U.S., it just seems a natural... um, Progression that more and more people are going to start buying more U.S. stocks over time with, with names that they're familiar with. Whereas in China, it's not as open. Capital markets are not as open. It's more of a, is this a core allocation in my portfolio? Uh, probably not for most people, unless you're from Asia maybe and you feel you, you're really confident in the Chinese economy or you you know super patriotic and want to buy Chinese stocks, but without the returns. We <laughs> <It's laughs> like, should all buy DBS. You know, <laughs> um, but you know, I, I think that, that what you said, the whole annualized, I think over the past, well, MSCI China over the past 27 years is like 2.9% or something. And I think the S&P over that same time frame um, from 95 was something like, you know, 11, like around 11, 12%. But as Howard Mark said, in any given year, the S&P never returns like 9 to 10%. It's either up yep. 25 or down like 15 or something. So, you know, it, it all averages out But you have to just really be staying invested and thinking about mm-hmm. it. Um, you know, over the long term. But I don't think, in that sense, there's, you know, terminal decline in the U.S. capital markets
2: uh, whatsoever. Cool. Yeah. How about you, Sam? Well, actually, I concur with what Tim actually says, uh, that I do not foresee that the U.S. markets will suddenly just go bust overnight. And I think that it's mainly due to a lo- asset location. They will not put all their money in China or where- whereby they feel that China is safer than U.S. for now, for example. And that's we're mm-hmm. looking at, uh, I would say, sentiment perspective. And if you look at a regulatory perspective, what Tim says is also very true. U.S., in terms of the U.S. stock market, is a free market. E- anybody can buy into it. And if you look at it, if you look at the trading volumes, it's not dominated by the retail investors, but it's dominated by the funds. Okay. And if you look at most matured financial markets, who are the ones trading it are naturally the funds because of the fact that they are mm-hmm. open economy and funds are the one, or insti, insti clients are the ones that are actually moving the markets. But that is a very different case for China. You can see that for the CSI 300 as well as uh, it, or sort of like you Shanghai Stock Exchange or the St. John Stock Exchange, for example, around 60 to 70% of their intraday trades are actually dominated by retail. And retail oh, is the okay. one that actually moves the market. So it's very, very different in terms of the investing space from uh, like even Singapore or even the US. And I yeah. think that it also shows the mentality that for funds, they are not buying into or they are not dominating into the Chinese markets. And if funds or example, fund, or mutual funds, global mutual funds do not do that, it shows that maybe there's still room for growth in the long run when China opens up further because China mm. is still not fully open in that sense. And I think that uh, that is one thought that people should look at as well. Whereby, if you're looking at growth potential, potentially that ca- could be a catalyst. But if we look at the US itself, we may see slight uh, decline because as different uh, global leaders start to rise up and ca- play catch up. But that being said, I don't think the US, in terms of its global position right now, whereby you can see a lot of pe- a lot of global investors looking at US as the next market aside from their home country to invest in, will dwindle away anytime soon. Yeah.
0: What do you think? Uh, a more well, what do you think an allocation to China in terms of like portfolio percentage should look like? I know Tim said like max 10%. Do you
2: have any views on that? I'm looking at maybe a 30 to 40%. Uh, mm-hmm. at, at, at minimum, actually, okay. I personally believe that if you wait for the time to come and when things all start rising like nobody's business, then if you jump onto the train, you may miss the, miss the boat already. If you are looking at a long-term growth story, I personally do not think China also will go bust overnight. If right now we are only looking at the very well-known names or things we are very comfortable with already, we, I, how much more growth can it have? I would rather look at things that are more like thematic and I feel that mm. ha- has a part to play in the global future, like maybe in the next 10 to 20 years times. And I think that since I don't know what is the right company to pick, because we will know what will be the gem that derives from the rest, right? Like back 10 to 20 years back, we will know Apple will be the next uh, tech leader. So I think that maybe just buying into one thematic ETF that I feel that, Mm -hmm. or a few thematic ETFs that I feel that could could drive the future economy. And then from there, I'll just wait it out and then uh, see how will I benefit from it in the long run. (laughs) Let's say five to 10 years.
0: Do you think China or like a specific thematic ETF in China will outperform S&P? Right? Because I know that's a little question, I'm sorry, but that, that's kind of the the underlying reason for a high Chinese allocation, right? You think that it will outperform. You know, it's not just about, oh, I want exposure for the sake of exposure. It's, it's I want exposure because I think they'll do better.
2: So what Tim rightfully pointed out, the S&P is either a, a one year, you get a positive 20 plus percent, or the next year, you can go a negative. Definitely, in the average long run, you are averaging around 10 percent a year. Mm-hmm. But that being said, that we definitely do not want to actually just dive into something for the sake of diving, but we are looking at diversification because definitely mm. on our portfolio, we would have, have a short, have some US allocation, home country allocation, and definitely SP will be part, part of it. But do we want to place so much emphasis on just the SP? I mean, if you want to put 100% mm. into S&P, then yes, you definitely just be tagging along the SP and following the benchmark index. But if you are looking at diversification, we will definitely be looking at potential ways to diversify is such that I wouldn't let behind. Meaning to say that if the S&P go down, maybe I can at least generate a positive return that year. But of course, if like, when the S&P is outperforming, maybe I just don't let too far behind. Maybe because I think <clears> if we are looking at that kind of uh, balancing act, and it's very hard to achieve no, if somebody comes and to you and tell you that, oh, I, I've achieved that. I'm very proud of it. Then you must congratulate him because it's one of the very rare cases. But I, I think and it's then a then lot I of say, mix are and Are you going to start yeah. your own fund? <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely. They can be their own fund manager, but I think it's a lot of mix and match. Some people yeah. will say that, oh, what, what you're looking at, the risk is too low for me. I'm high, even higher risk appetite. Then naturally, they'll even go for more risky instruments. So, so mm. I think it's how you want to manage your risk and how, how you feel that it's the right way in the sense that your portfolio fits your risk profile the best. I'm thinking longer term and buying and holding. So
1: I think with, you know, the technicals in China and, the, and, and how low it's gotten, you know, maybe there's a trading momentum trade there for, for clients, for his clients. I, you know, I, I would agree, tend to agree. It's come off so, so hard, right? So much that, you know, maybe there are some opportunities amid all the rubble in China. If mm. you want to trade something for this year or in like or the next like six, 12 months, um, I think over the longer term, you just have to be cognizant of the risks from the regulatory perspective, which is why I go back to, I guess, the 10%, right? It's more, you know, there's this whole Russia-Ukraine thing, which is which has just opened investors' eyes and and ins- 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 the eyes in the West to exposure to China. And then you saw at the end of last year, um, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Funds uh, sold out of Lining, which is the sportswear manufacturer because of its links to Xinjiang, like cotton, and that you know that that basically took a sledgehammer to the share price in a day. I think it felt like 10%. So these things which are ESG-related maybe and are related back to Western norms of ESG or mm-hmm. what they should be thinking about, these are things that impact companies in China, which are great companies, but they could totally take that you out on that, just on that front because, hey, this company is well-run, but it uses a certain component or it adheres to the Chinese government telling it what to do, for example, and that's going to get punished by by either u s regulators or European regulators and because they've got that economic leverage as you've kind of seen in Russia and Ukraine as an investor you just you know I'm not there to say whether that's right or wrong or where I agree with it but you just have to accept that that's a risk that is there inherently as an investor right so whether that's right or wrong from like the political perspective um, is meaningless because it's going to have an impact on your on your account and your trading on your investment account um so to be understanding of that risk is important. Uh, but if you go in and buy it and you know that that's a risk, I'm, you know, it might not happen. It could well happen. Um, there might not be a big chance of it happening, but at least you know that's a possibility, right? Whereas if China imposes uh, something, you know, in, Ch- in China, I guess they impose the whole weaponization of consumers where they say, like, oh, don't buy this or don't buy that. Um, and that could lead to certain risks for U.S. companies, for example, if, if the Chinese government decided to do that. But on the trade or like you know the I guess the economic framework of the world, they don't have that leverage. Maybe whereas the US does um, for for certain for certain names, especially especially in the financial institutions world where they help, yep. they're holding so much uh, stock of Chinese companies. Everyone is going to spend more in China over the next decade. It's
0: so boring. To <laughs> the rise of the middle class. Yeah,
1: right? it's so dull. It's I mean t- typically for us like investing in China over the past ten years is so boring. Like buying I don't know like a noodle maker. Okay. or yeah well no not not malta because that's that's alcohol that's bad and chinese government doesn't like that so <laughs> <laughs> like things that are healthy i don't know milk you know like i don't know one of the you know there, there are loads of the milk producers and and
2: you know noodle noodle makers like basics yeah, that maybe, yeah maybe tim was mentioning about regulatory risk and i think that recently now the most important thing that people are worried of is about the adr's so we just mm-hmm. have to uh, bear that in mind as it's really one of the riskiest things that could happen and if like example funds were to move out of ADRs and move into their Hong Kong counterpart I think that it will cause another wave of exodus in the markets so that uh, mm-hmm. is something that people will have to be wary of especially in the Chinese markets
0: And so, direct conversion. Uh,
2: it, but... it will be like example just like delisting the ADRs and then giving mm-hmm. you the Hong Kong shares
0: mm-hmm.
2: etc in the ratio that it's actually divided into but I okay. think that at the end of the day, right now what uh people are worried of is uh, fund houses actually prior because of the delisting risk prior to that some fund houses has actually switched like maybe the U.S. ADR Baba to uh, Hong Kong uh listed Baba uh, Alibaba and because mm-hmm. of that you can see that there may be outflows in one way or another and eventually uh it may cause some uh sort of like turmoil in markets yeah.
1: At least from my perspective, how I think about China and, and I guess, big tech and innovation in China. I mean, uh, from 2010 to 2020, the past decade, you had a lot of innovation from the likes of Baba and Alipay and Ant and Tencent, right? And I think that's really um, come through in how the digitization of the consumer economy. It's so much innovation we, it's just light years ahead of stuff that you saw in the U.S., um, in terms of banking and, and consumer, you know, consumer payments and all that kind of stuff, which I think was great. But now that's changed. I think the common prosperity program has, at least from my eyes, fundamentally changed how much innovation maybe is going to be possible going forward. I'm from Hong Kong, right? So the press in Hong Kong is starting to self-censor itself. So I like to draw this analogy to uh, innovation in business, right? I mean, you know, they're starting, you're starting to think like Tencent, they had that merger with like Puya like with uh, Penguin Sports and mm-hmm. that got shut down, right, because of streaming. Is, oh, it's something the government doesn't like. And so to me, that just came off as self-censorship. Like, oh, this is a great business opportunity maybe to pursue, but the government doesn't like it, so we're not going to go do that and really push any boundaries. And so, if you think about innovation, where do the best ideas come from is when things, are, boundaries are pushed, right, and things are like really taken to, I think, new extremes and, and people experiment with things. And so I think my fear for big tech, at least in China, big tech consumer facing is they're really not going to experiment as much or they're going to be afraid to experiment because they don't want to go, draw, go over a line, which, as you said, Anthony, they don't know where the line is. So. They just better just stay safe and just stick to what they're doing well and really not maybe not experiment so much and not upset the Chinese government so much. So I think, from a innovation perspective, that to me is maybe a bit of a sea change from what we've seen in the past decade. Which I think I would think about from a from a tech perspective. For me, yep. it just that that kind of concerns me because I think innovation is always more about. Um, just pushing boundaries and thinking about new products and, and and how you can monetize that. And I think that's changed. And I think that mentality has changed in the China tech.
0: All right, cool. I think that's about it for tonight. Thank, thank you both again so much for your time. And, and I hope to be able to speak to you soon on another episode. Yeah, me too. All thanks right. Thanks guys. That. Thank you. Bye. Right. Thanks. Bye. Hey, coconuts. So I hope you learned something useful today. I definitely did. But of course, whether or not to invest is always a personal decision. We are not here to tell you to do this, to do that, but are always happy to geek out with you about different interesting perspectives, companies, and trends for the future. This series definitely has a lot more depth. So if you have any feedback, ideas, or companies you would like us to cover, do drop us a line through our socials or email us at hello at financialcoconut.com. See you next time.